Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello fellow time travelers. I love each and every one of you. Great to have you along for the ride. Uh, we've been travelling together for years now, <laughs> which seems incredible. Uh, so before we kick off on today's bite of the trip, today's episode, a couple of quick adverts for you. hope you don't mind. Firstly, my new book. My new book has just published last week. Uh, it's called Hauntings, A Book of Ghosts and Where to Find Them. Uh, and it's available in all good bookshops. It's available by whatever means you acquire your books. It's, there's an audio version of it which I recorded myself, so it's my voice reading it. It's a contemplation of various things. It's a history book to some extent because all of the haunted places that I, that I describe, you know, have a backstory that explains. You know, maybe it's a battle, uh, maybe it's a, a stately home, a patch of landscape that's that's had a story long enough to have generated stories of haunting. So there's, there's history, there's, there's traditional ghost stories in it, but it's also a contemplation of why it is we seem to have always needed ghost stories. Uh, and history shows us that we have. The Epic of Gilgamesh, which is older than the Old Testament, is in part a ghost story. It has ghosts in it. We seem as a species to have needed to tell each other about ghosts and about feeling haunted for as long as there's been people. And that, that fascinates me. Why? Why do we seem to need those kinds of stories? probably going to say it comes down to fear of death but there's there's more to it than that um, so if you'd like a copy of my new book and I can put in a personal dedication you know I can wish mum and dad happy Christmas whatever uh, just go to my website neiloliver.com and you can you can find the details there uh, and as I say it's available everywhere Second announcement, a big thanks to everyone who supports the making of this podcast series. I have to keep saying that because it's always true. Uh, and the, the core of the support comes via the patreon.com presence that, that Paul and I have generated here. If you're not a member and you'd like to be, if you'd like to join up, go to patreon.com, search for me by name and sign up. It's a little bit of cash, monthly or annually. It's cheaper if you sign up for a whole year. Uh, and in return, you get access to exclusive content, new videos, competitions, question and answer sessions, and so on and so on. Uh, I do monologues about the state of the nation and current affairs. And you can see it all if you go to patreon.com and sign up. Okay, that's the end of the advert break. It's now time to strap into the time machine as we hurtle uh, towards the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. A momentous milestone in the history of humankind is reached 
but exactly where and when it happened is and always will be a mystery. Human beings of one sort or another have been on planet Earth for, let's say, two million years, living, evolving and surviving against the odds. Sometime, somewhere, in the first decade, it is estimated, of the 19th century, a child was born, a new life, taking the world's population to one billion souls for the very first time. Morning, Neil. Last week, you took us to meet two military geniuses, one who dominated Europe on land and the other who ruled the waves. Where are we this week? Hi, Paul. Y- yes, you're right. In the last episode, we met uh, old Boney, Napoleon Bonaparte, and his nemesis on on the water, at least, Horatio Nelson, the Admiral. Two fascinating figures who both, in their own different ways, made a huge impact on world history. This week's journey is a bit of a mystery tour because the specific person and their exact location is... Well, it's unknown and must always be unknown, but it's an important landmark. It's an important moment in the development of our species, which I think should help remind us that every single one of us matters, or none of us do. Where are we today? Well, we're we're somewhere on planet Earth. This one's possibly unique. This love letter is possibly unique in that for reasons that will become apparent, it's impossible to say where and when it happened. Uh, Really, I think we're talking slightly more precisely about when. It's a when more than a where. It's when the world's population of human beings reached one billion for the first time, which is quite a moment. I mean, some moments are impossible to pin down, uh, even when we know they must have happened. Uh, But at some point, and it's been pinned down to sometime in the first decade of the 19th century, so somewhere around 1800 to, to 1810, a baby was born somewhere that must have tipped us over. (laughs) <laughs> from the you know from the millions into the billion for the first time and it's it's fascinating to think about it because whenever and wherever it actually happened by that point there, there had been human life of a sort for at least 2 million years and i think it's Albert Einstein, amongst others, has pointed out that one of the great kind of knowledge gaps that almost everyone labours under is an inability to comprehend compound interest, (laughs) that function. A rate of a process can can remain constant, but the consequences of it... change radically at a certain point. The human birth rate is, you know, a mummy and a daddy get together and, broadly speaking, they produce a baby. Occasionally you get twins and triplets, but, broadly speaking, one and one comes together and makes a third. And that's the rate. That's, that's human population. But eventually you reach a tipping point, 
and it happened to us around 1800, where the consequences of that rate start to change the world. And so we got to a billion. A billion people were racked up for the first time. So does that mean the the birth rate stays the same, but at some point it leads to a huge spike in population growth? It's People, people don't realise, largely because you don't get taught it at school, that that reproduction, that rate of reproduction is, is pretty constant. But because you've got more and more people taking part in that, the numbers start to spike sharply. It's, it's, it's an imperfect analogy, but it's, it's vaguely helpful to contemplate that uh, idea of you know, the, the person who invented chess... Uh, the, the Shah was so impressed that he said you can have whatever you want as a prize, as a reward. The guy said, well, can I have one grain of rice on the first square and then two on the second and then four on the next and eight on the next and so on all the way through the 64 squares? And the, and the Shah said, yeah, 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 whatever. Well, it turned out that that process of doubling meant that by the time you get to the end of the chessboard, the number of grains of rice is a number with more zeros on it than anybody wants to contemplate. It's impossible to give anyone that much rice. And so the king lost his throne and whatever, whatever, whatever. It, it, something, something similar is happening with birth rate. What happened for us, that, that point, it hit us around 1800 and it, we hit a billion, okay, for the first time. After it having taken 2 million years to get to a billion, it then only took 125 years, another 125 years after 1800, to get to 2 billion. And then it only took 30 years to get to 3 billion. And at the moment, it would appear that we're adding about a billion people to the population of the planet every 15 years. That's in the nature of a constant rate, but the compound effect of it and I mean, as well, you know, you have to consider when you think about our species, there was more than one moment in the dim and distant past when we were almost wiped out. There were at least a couple, probably more, near extinction events for the human species. And, and at one point, the scientists have calculated that the population on the planet of Homo sapiens, which is us, it m might have got down to... or. Not just Homo sapiens, but you know, over that two million period, sometimes it was Homo erectus, sometimes it was Homo neanderthalensis, sometimes it was Homo antecessor. More recently, it's been Homo sapiens. But at one point, the population of Homo might have got down to a few thousand across the entire planet. And we are all, everyone alive today, if it is 8 billion, which is what we're told, we're all descended from a few thousand people at the most. You know, so so the, the you know the point now that we're you know now that there's billions of us, it is worth remembering, however, that there were times when we were almost wiped out. So, when I contemplated this, I was struck by how our species is both formidable, but vulnerable. You know, we are capable of almost anything, good and bad, and everything in between. But we are always vulnerable. And more than anything else, not climate, not, not natural disaster, we are mostly vulnerable to one another. The greatest threat 
opposed to humankind is humankind. And I think we lose sight of that. And it was expressed quite well for me by a line from the English poet and artist Mervyn Peake, who, who in a poem called To Live is Miracle Enough, made that point. To live at all is miracle enough. There's a quote from the, from the poem, The doom of nations is another thing. Here in my hammering blood pulse is my proof. It's important, it's vitally important to pay attention to how unlikely each of us is. The, the impossible string of coincidences and chance that lead to the creation of each and every one of us. It's so statistically unlikely that any of us would be here. You know, it's, worth, it's important to remember that because the more and more of us there are on the planet at any one moment, the less attention I think we pay to the individual. And it's it's the taking for granted, it's the disregard of the individual that is so desperately dangerous to our continued existence. And at the moment, it depends who you read and what you what you watch. But some people predict, some population specialists predict that we're going to hit a peak in the next whatever century, 150 years, whatever, of about 10 billion people, and that then there's going to be a fall. For all sorts of reasons, for example, contributory, contributory factors like the one-child policy in China, you know, it means that the population there is going to fall because there aren't enough wee girls for the wee boys. They've got a kind of a ten-to-one imbalance between in the ratio between boys and girls, and there just aren't enough wives for this for the husbands coming forward as the as the years go on, and we've got birth rates falling all across the developed world populations aren't having enough babies to replace themselves so you need you need each mother to be having 2.1 babies just to just to maintain the population going forward and at the moment populations in the west are like 1.3 1.4 1.5 1.6 in japan is is predicted to go into a severe tailspin possibly unstoppable because of the way in which its birth rate has fallen but so you know, there's a lot of us now, and there's going to be more. Although I'm, I'm kind of suspicious about the actual numbers, because I'm, I'm questioning about a lot of things. But there's, there's a lot of us at the moment. But it's predicted that in the future there's going to be fewer, one way or another. And e- even at the moment, when you read around this topic, say there's, let's say there's eight billion people alive at the moment. If you imagine each one of those human beings as like a, a six foot long log, <laughs> there or thereabout. You could stack all of us into the space presently occupied by Lake Windermere in Cumbria, in England. You know, one of England's biggest and most famous lakes. If you took out all the water, you could stack 8 billion people in the space with space left over. You know, so we're not, although 8 billion sounds like a lot of people, and it is, you know, on the surface of the earth, we're still fairly insignificant. It's worth remembering that we, we, some people might feel overwhelmed by the numbers of people that are alive on the planet at the moment, but at, at the same time, we're always desperately vulnerable to all sorts of things. And I would say we, are the, we pose ourselves the greatest threat. <laughs> it's us. We are, the, we are the problem with each other. But we're like flies on a horse's flank. If it shrugs, <laughs> we're off. We have a casual disregard for one another. I think that 
may be our undoing. And so to get back to Mervyn Peak, to live at all is miracle enough. I believe that line is on his gravestone. To live at all is miracle enough. I, I, I followed his line a bit. I followed his story. And Peak was sent, as it happened, by a British newspaper to record as a, as a, as a kind of a war artist so in drawings and in paintings, the liberation of Bergen-Belsen, the concentration camp in northwest Germany, went out there in 1945 for the paper. And, you know, as I say, it, it, it seems opposite because he had in his consciousness this notion of the, of the significance of, of each life. One of his poems, one of his many poems, is The Rhyme of the Flying Bomb. I've got, I've got a bit of it here. It's a poem that he wrote about, he was imagining... Uh, during during the during the blitz, he was imagining a sailor, you know, a, a uniformed serviceman, running through the streets of London with a with a baby in his arms, while while everything, well, tons and tons and tons of bombs rained down. A ton came down on a coloured road, and a ton came down on a jail, and a ton came down on a freckled girl. This, you know, it was a horror that haunted. Peak. It was in his dreams. If you know his writings, you know Titus Groan and all of the rest of it. There's a darkness that he was that he was aware of. And at Bergen-Belsen, you know, he saw how casually, frankly, and that's one word you could use. Any one of us might be dispatched, done away with, but by the kind of people who would look you in the eye while doing it. Such was their disregard. Such was their loathing for. For, for, for some of their fellow humankind and as well as doing the drawings and paintings that he had been commissioned in order to you know, create a record of, of what was there uh, he wrote again and he wrote a poem called The Consumptive and it, he witnessed with his own eyes the, the death of a little girl if seeing her an hour before her last weak cough into all blackness I could yet be held by chalk white arms and by the great and coloured bed and the pillows hardly creased by the tapping of her little cough-jerked head. If such can be a painter's ecstasy, her limbs like pipes, her head a china skull, then where is mercy? You know, where, is, where is mercy, <laughs> is the question. At, at the moment, at the moment, where, where's the mercy? And so I'm haunted by the moment, this moment, in a way that I'm not haunted by any of the others. You know, this moment when we ticked over into a billion people and suddenly seemed to feel to one another like a lot and more and more all the time. And as the numbers, if they continue to grow larger, we're more and more in danger of losing sight of the individual, the sacred, inviolable, sovereign individual they're lost and that, that little girl that he wrote about dying of consumption, tuberculosis you know, that little girl sick and dying the loss of her is made to seem less because there are so many more people besides if you have that attitude and we need to remember that at any moment any of us, any one of us might just vanish you know the bit in uh, Rutger Hoyer the, plays the replicant in Blade Runner and he has that soliloquy towards the end of the film you know, where, he, where he talks about how the, the moments that he has experienced those things that he has seen 
when he dies, all of that will vanish like tears in rain. That will that will be gone, and and you know each each one of us carries a cargo of of memory and moments, and with the loss of each one of us, that's all just gone forever. And so that that moment is worth paying attention to, because for as long as too many of us think that there are too many of us, we are all in desperate danger from each other. And and it just seems to me that, you know, either, there's a stark choice, either each of us matters, every one of us matters, or else, quite frankly, the conclusion to draw would be that none of us do. And if we live amongst a population where too many people think that none of us matter, that's that's the road to a dark place. Was it celebrated at the time when it became a billion? I know no, it's only been, it's only been, it's been calculated. I mean, looking back from much more recently, I don't know how demographers do it. it it's a notional concept, really. But it's been calculated looking at population patterns and, and population growth and looking at, you know, from the advent of where people were subject to census and being counted and so on and so on. It has been calculated, it's been sort of reverse engineered, that it must have been there or thereabouts around the year 1800 that there were a, a billion of us. It is a notional concept, but the fact remains there, there, there was a day... There was a there was a birth somewhere somewhen that tipped us over into a billion for the for the very first time, and then only 125 years later, two billion, two million years to get to a billion, and then only 125 more to double it, and then 30 years to get to three, and now it's every 10 or 15 years been another billion. But it doesn't look as if that particular trajectory is going to sustain. It can't, for all sorts of reasons. It'll, it'll crash. It's interesting that we celebrate all over the world the new millennium, but we don't celebrate big numbers like eight billion or. You, me, we don't know, but but, but there's, we we can look on and see that there is a split between you know Elon Musk, for example. Everyone's heard of Elon Musk, and Elon Musk has taken the side of the argument. Whether he remains on that side of the argument forever is anybody's guess. But at the moment, he says that the biggest threat facing the human species at the moment is going to be falling birth rate, loss of population. He, you know, he says it, that's an existential crisis. But on the other side of that debate are those who say, no, 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 if, if there are only 500 million people on the planet, it would be utopia. Right, so one side of that argument is wrong. <laughs> and you, me, you know, we, we don't know which one it is. But both sides of the argument are being championed by, you know, well, considerable people, people with some clout and gravity. Who's right? I don't know, but it's worth paying attention to the debate because it affects every last one of us. An ugliness in humanity's soul. Treating others as property is a crime staining human history for thousands of years. We've all done it. Born into slavery in Jamaica, an eloquent and passionate man calls for action and as many as 60,000 rise up in rebellion.
next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Be great to see you there. I have a new website address uh, that you should familiarise yourselves with. It's neiloliver.com. Check out my shop for merchandise uh, related to the podcast series. There's t-shirts and mugs and hoodies and t-shirts and all the rest of it. You'll find the details on my website attached to this podcast. My Instagram account with great daily updates is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called the Neil Oliver Channel. We keep it simple here, Paul and I. And it features new films every week. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it and get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. The finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios. Graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production.